Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Looking at Romans 8, 19 to 22. Keep that... um part of your worship folder open as we come now to the Bible or turn to it in your Bibles or in your phones, uh, Romans eight nineteen through to 22. Now, just a spoiler for next week. Uh, next week, we're looking at, uh, it's Valentine's Day weekend next week. You know that, right? And so we're looking at love, sex, and God. And um, so it's, you know, it's not going to be all body parts, right? Um, but it is, you know, love, sex, and God. So just letting you know that's coming up next weekend. It will be appropriate for families, right? Um, we'll probably actually have the biggest attendance ever next weekend. <laughs> so I'm just letting you know about that. It reminds me when I was a teenager running a Christian group, uh, we were trying to drum up some interest to the Christian group, and we decided that the way we would do that is we would put up huge posters all around the school and put as the main title for the poster in massive letters, one word, sex. And then underneath in slightly smaller writing was written, now we have your attention, there will be a Bible study on Friday. <laughs> we got into a lot of trouble. (laughs) Okay, so let's look at the Bible then. Romans 8, 19 to 22. And uh, this is actually a matter of great impact and contemporary relevance. And it may not seem immediately obvious. It may seem like it's slightly, you know, all about... I was going to say all about the birds and the bees, but that's next week. Um... Not, not really. Um, it's all about sort of, you know, flowers and, you know, we know we should be interested in that. It doesn't sound very relevant. But actually, what's going on here is hugely relevant. And so I need to just give a couple of examples of that to keep your attention as we go through. Um, take the recent health scare going on around the world at the moment, Zika, and the way it causes children to be born with unnaturally small heads. So if we're just aware of things like that in the news, we're going to want to know why. And every culture, every moment in time, every society has a myth, a cosmic worldview that answers that sort of question and makes life have some sort of valid meaning with these things that we experience in our world. And Paul here is quite 
literally giving us a world view. It's a big picture, explanatory grid that explains the suffering in our world that we all experience. Now, we looked at suffering last week. That was very personal, but this week is also personal. And in fact, all the way through this section now, in the second half of Romans, Paul is answering the question, well, if, if we can be assured of our relationship to Jesus, if we have risen with Jesus, then why is there still suffering in this world? It's a very real section of the Bible. And a big part of that today, the question is, what on earth is going on with the earth? The climate, environment, how do we understand that? And every culture always has an explanatory grid, in that sense, a myth, a framework, a way of looking at life that tries to make sense of the data. So, uh, on the one hand, there's beauty. The world is a beautiful place. On the other hand, Zika. How do, how do you explain that? Well, let's make it a little bit more personal. Uh, one of our children has had a long, long battle with health still does how do you how do you make sense of that how how do you make sense of your own experience of life in terms of your view of god in terms of your view of what life is about your world view your view of the world and what paul's doing here is he's saying that the biblical way of looking at life the view of the world that he's proposing is not only the one that makes any sense but also is the only one that is one that has big practical implications for how we live now, i think this is the most important issue for spirituality today paul has said that suffering is about understanding the purpose of god behind it that god has a purpose if you're in Christ, you, you suffer with Christ in order that you'll be glorified with Christ. Understand that purpose. And there's a choice to be made to look and say that the glory that is to be revealed cannot even be compared with the suffering of this present time. It's a choice to consider life that way. But now he pulls back from that individual level. And he says, well, does that actually make sense of life? Is that actually what the world's like? It's a big cosmic view. And so this is very important because, you see, Christianity is not just about me as an individual getting saved. It's about the world, the universe, the whole of creation, everything. 
And what Paul's doing here is he's contrasting the right way of looking at life, the right worldview with two wrong ways. See, every culture has different ways of looking at the world. And then, predominantly, and in the Church of Rome with its Jewish and Gentile elements, there was uh, the predominant Pharisaic way of answering this big question. And there was the predominant Greek and Roman way of answering it. And actually, today, we have similar options. In essence, one is too negative, the other is too positive, and the third, what Paul was teaching here, is just right. This is a story here today, a sort of Goldilocks and the Three Bears story. One too negative, the other too positive, and the third just right. Three views of the world, each with massive, massive implications for how you live your life in the most practical of ways. The first is too negative. This was, in a sense, the Pharisaic view of the world, and he answered each of the questions here in a negative kind of way about the world. They distanced themselves, separated themselves, literally purified themselves, and their view of the world was essentially negative. Now, I'm summarizing and simplifying, uh, but the point still holds. Paul has here three steps. These verses, 19 to 22, have three elements, each connected by an ascending four. So, for the creation waits, verse 19, then For the creation was subjected, verse 20, and then verse 22, for we know. And each of these elements, each of these worldviews answers those in a particular way. The Pharisaic way is similar to the way that many people in every society, and certainly today, answer the worldview question. It's all going to burn anyway. becomes very individualistic. There's something good, of course, in creation. The first four, that there is a message that points to some higher reality. So for secular people, that higher reality is just there's beauty and nature is wonderful and you can watch BBC explorations of planet Earth. Or for religious people, it can be, okay, somehow this points to God, but despite that, there's something wrong with it. As the poet Tennyson says, the world is red in tooth and claw, blood red. And so there is, as Woody Allen put it, you know, you look at nature and you just see one big restaurant. Everything is eating everything else. And that is one way of interpreting the data. Good. Yes, but there's a, this complete futility. And then, of course, why? Well, the negative view, somehow or other, says, well, it's just going to all fall apart in the end. That's, that's why. And so, therefore, the practical level, get what you can while you can. That happens within religious areas, too. Certain kinds of industrialization has raped the earth and taken little thought for taking care of the world because it's all going to fall apart. It's a story that gives it legitimacy. Yes, there's something wonderful about a sunset. 
but no, there's no real meaning. And so the answer is just to extract what you can from the earth while you still can. And that's how a lot of people have lived. You can do it in religious ways. You can do it in secular ways. It's a, it's a myth, a, a worldview. And, of course, that has huge consequences for how you live. If it's done in a religious way, it tends to lead you to live separate lives from the world. You don't appreciate nature. You don't appreciate art or great music or literature. You are separationist. Uh, This was, in many ways, the mistake of the fundamentalists. Originally, the fundamentalists were trying to get back to the fundamentals, meaning the essentials. They were trying to say, what are the essentials of the Christian faith? But then it grew to being a very negative view of the world and became restrictive. And still, today, people are either locked within that view of the world or reacting so far against it, they swing the other way and become like Mr. Worldly Wise Man from Pilgrim's Progress and go from having a too negative view of the world to a too positive view of the world. What is this too positive view of the world? Well, in a way, this is a lot more attractive for most people today, certainly if you're under 25 or something, but for, for, any, for a lot of us, this is just all in the air these days, this view of the world. We are very organic, very crunchy, you know. uh, very uh, hug a tree and save the earth, right? Now, this is in some ways a better uh, view than the too negative view of the world for all sorts of obvious reasons, but in some ways it is not. In essence, rather than being a pharisaic view of the world, it's a more pagan view of the world. Pagan meaning literally from the country or the countryside. The pagans viewed nature as dynamic. Gods of this river or that mountain were sort of invested, present in uh, nature. And, of course, none of us here do that literally anymore, worship the god of, you know, DuPage River, which is, you know, it would be a little... I've never seen anyone worshipping the god of DuPage River, and perhaps you have, but I haven't personally noticed it. Um, None of us, I guess, do that literally anymore, though it was the worldview of the Native American religions, a too positive view of the world of nature. And you say, well, I can see what's wrong about the too negative view of the world. We're always being warned these days to look after the environment and all that. Well, what could be wrong with this more positive view of the world? Well, here it is. Here's what's wrong. It just doesn't work. Annie Dillard won the Pulitzer Prize for her book, Pilgrim of Tinker Creek. She goes to explore nature with this very positive, too positive view of nature. She sits by a stream and she observes nature in all its beauty over months. And there is, there is that, right? But then she describes this moment when she realized her worldview, her view of the world just couldn't hold up to reality. 
there was a huge water bug that literally landed on a frog and then sucked the life out of the frog while the frog was still living. She described it like this. Downstream at the island's tip where the giant water bug classed and ate the living frog, I sat and sucked at my own dry knuckles. It was the way the frog's eyes crumpled. His mouth was a gash of terror. The shining skin of his breast and shoulder shivered once and sagged, reduced to an empty purse. But oh, those two snuffed eyes. They crinkled. The comprehension poured out of them as if sense and life had been a mere incidental addition to the idea of eyes, a filling like any jam in a jar that is soon and easily emptied. They flattened, lightless, opaque, and sank. So what do you do with that if you're just wanting to save the earth? I mean, do you want to save the sucking the life out of the frog kind of earth? So the three questions here that Paul answers and is saying that the biblical way of looking at life fits, each of these three fours in this passage, this worldview answers in a two positive way. So verse 19, the nature, the world is not longing for anything or looking forward to anything. It's just fine as it is. There's no futility to it. Verse 20, it has meaning in it and is its own meaning and it's not groaning, it's rejoicing. The world is one long beautiful sunset, but it's not. There are bugs that suck the life out of frogs while the frog sits there and just has to take it. And if you don't face up to that, If you don't face up to the failures of a too negative view of the world, then you're going to rape the earth and create environmental chaos. But if you don't face up to the failures of a too positive view of the world, then you're going to have troubles too. Life won't make sense. How do you answer Zika? You know the real problem of this too positive view of the world is it tends to end up being harsh towards people. The most extreme form of this is some of the human sacrifice that the pagan religions used to do. You've got to look after the cosmos and balance the forces. And humans are sacrificed to that end. Now, we don't do that so extreme anymore, or don't we? You know, some of the same people who are so enthusiastic about protecting the earth Which is a good thing, of course, if you get it just right, as we'll see in a moment. But when it's the too positive view, then some of the same people are sort of okay about killing unborn children. And I'm not going to get political at all ever from this pulpit. But there is an imbalance when you're hugging trees and saving whales and killing your babies. And so, in essence, actually, here we get to just the just right view. And now I want to show you how Paul is contrasting his cosmic view of the world to these wrong views here in this text and why that matters. Now remember, Paul's letter is massive, okay? So this is part of a huge worldview. John Calvin put it like this. If we have gained a true understanding of this letter, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. So... Paul was writing to give the church at Rome a solid, sound, thrilling framework for doing evangelism and world mission, being a sending church, 
to all nations. And he's giving them his summary of the gospel for that purpose, showing them how it is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. It has the solution to that tension, to negative view, to positive view in his gospel. And so when we get to it, it opens up doors to understanding all of the Bible and really the whole world and life. It's not just individualistic, pietistic, my little thing going on. It's the universe and how I understand life and how I fit within that whole massive cosmic world. And so really here, when we have these verses, it's Paul's commentary on Genesis chapter 3. Look, if you take Genesis chapter 3 out of your Bible, the rest will not make any sense whatsoever. It's one of the reasons why we're reading through the whole Bible this year so we can see how it fits together as a church. If you take Genesis chapter 3 out, none of the rest will make any sense. And Paul's saying, you've got to understand that chapter if you are to understand anything about suffering, either personally, you will not understand your personal suffering if you don't understand chapter 3 of Genesis, personally or cosmically. You won't understand Zika. You won't understand autism. You won't understand cancer. You won't understand bugs sucking the life out of living frogs. And, and having a way of looking at life then becomes massively practical too as a consequence. So look at how he does it. The four in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. This, this is really Paul's comment on what Martin Luther uh, described as the proto-evangelium. That is the first announcement of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. So we sinned against God and as a consequence and as a necessary judgment, all human relationships, all of the actual created order is bound then to what Paul calls here futility. And so he's sliding in commentary after commentary as he expands from this lens to understanding the whole of Scripture. Because that word, futility, is drawn from the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, says the teacher, always vanity, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, always meaningless. And so Paul's saying, if you've looked at the world around you and your experience of life, and he said, well, it's not going anywhere. It doesn't mean anything. It just feels meaningless, pointless. Why did I get that degree and have to end up working in Starbucks? I mean, come on. It's just pointless. Paul is saying the reason for that is what happened in Genesis chapter 3. But he's also saying it was subjected in hope. That's the proto Evangelium, that is, the gospel was announced at the same time. God is merciful. So there's a plan. It's the just right view of the world. It fits with reality all around. Yeah, there is meaninglessness. Yes, we all feel it. But at the same time, there are sunsets. And as John Calvin said somewhere else, every blade of grass is designed to give us joy. Every blade of grass is designed to give us joy. And so, that is why, verse 19, this first four, there is this eager longing. So he's personifying nature. He's picturing it as a person with, you know, a, person with a neck 
The, the word has this image of someone sort of craning their neck forward, looking around a corner, trying to get into something that's going to happen ahead, or standing on tiptoe, as one commentator put it, eagerly looking forward. And this forward movement. And then he says in the third, four, for we know. Typical Paul. That's how he speaks. We know. In other words, he's saying, we really should know. Because this is all around us. The glory of God is being proclaimed all the time. We should know. For we know. There are things that we know in theory, but we haven't appropriated in practice. We know, but we don't really know. We may feel it. You know, we, we come to an emotional service, the preacher gets all emotional, we get all kind of, oh, I really feel it, that was a great sermon, but it doesn't change anything. Why? Because it doesn't make any logical sense to us. It's like feeling good about buying something, but not having the money to buy it. We may feel it, but not be persuaded logically, we don't really know it. Or, on the other hand, we may be persuaded logically, we haven't really been moved by its truth, and so it doesn't make any difference either. Well, the Bible's not saying, like the ancient world was, put thinking above feeling. But the Bible's also not saying, like the contemporary world is saying, put feeling above thinking. You know, today, if you want to really know someone, what do you say? You say, share my heart. Share your heart. You know? Tell me what you feel. If you ask an ancient person that, they would say, tell me what you think. That's where you really know what someone's about. Today we say, tell me what you really feel. And the Bible's saying, no, actually there's this thing called the heart, that it's the core of the human personality, that is both the thinking and the feeling, united with the willing, and that's who we are. And what Paul's saying when he says, we know, echoes all this kind of language throughout the Scripture, we know in the center of who we are, like you know a person, like you know your wife, You know her thoroughly and completely. We should know this in that kind of way. We should know it. We should it should make sense intellectually. It should resonate with our with our gut feeling. It should be visceral. This makes sense. This is what the world is like. What what should we know? Well, there's a groaning. Actually, it's the same word used of Jesus when the uh, the translations usually say when Jesus came across a a deaf and a dumb man, he sighed. Same word. <sighs> How could it be? This man made in the image of God reduced to this. <sighs> Paul's saying the, the whole of, the whole cosmos is sighing. I was made for this and now there's, there's a bug sucking the life out of a living frog. Ah! Not only that, it's the pains of childbirth. It's a kind of Lamar's breathing, panting pain of being actual labor. In other words, it's not just a frustrated sigh. Ah, it's a something's about to happen. A child is about to arrive. And Paul's saying, we should know this. Because this is what the world is actually like. Yes, there is beauty. But the beauty is instinctively 
transcendent. It's pointing somewhere. And it's not just above transcendent, it's forward. It's pointing in hope. So nature, creation, Jonathan Edwards put it like this, is an image and a shadow of divine things. Now this is really quite profound. We don't have time to tease out all its implications. It's quite mysterious. But the, the, if you want to write a big book sometime, this will be worth writing several big books on. But the structure of our thinking, our tendency, for instance, to think in threes, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, we just tend to think like that. The way that there are echoes of redemption stories throughout all the myths of the world, pointing back, as C.S. Lewis would put it, to the true myth of the gospel. All this sense around us, in ourselves, of being made for something, something for which it's going to be right, just right, and we will not be frustrated or sense futility, the futility that we feel right now. So the most successful man or woman you can imagine says at the end of their life, is that it? Is that all I get to do? Because we're made to do things that we cannot possibly do in this decaying mortal existence. And so within us and within the world around us, there's a constant longing, eager longing, pushing forward, hoping forward, and a frustration, a sighing, and a groaning, a being in labor for something that is about to happen. What is that? Paul, using this wonderful image of labor, he says it's for the children of God to be revealed. There's going to be a birth. The children of God to be revealed. That's going to happen when Jesus returns. So, at the heart of nature now is its longing for the revealing of the sons of God, as Paul puts it in verse 19. See, the sons of God are not revealed right now. Oh, sure, you can get to know someone in the judgment of charity. You can figure out whether they're really a Christian or not. Sure, Christians have uh, bare fruit And so we can know whether we really are Jesus or not. But when you walk down the street, you take a train into Chicago, you just sit next to someone and you're doing like most people, you're listening to your earphones and they're listening to their earphones and you're ignoring each other, right? How? Well, maybe you have wonderful conversations every time you're on the train, I don't know. But you see them get off the train and they walk to work and there's this sort of mass crowd of people walking. Which, which of them are the sons of God and which of them are not? But one day it's not going to be like that. The sons of God, not male, male and female, adoption, this idea of adoption that we've looked at already in Romans, the, the children of God would be revealed. <laughs> The glory of the children of God will be glorified with Jesus and it will be revealed. And what Paul is saying is nature's hope is for that moment. That's when nature is going to be freed. That's when it's going to be released from its futility when who we really are, when Jesus returns, is going to be revealed. It will also share in the glory of the children of God. 
Then the new heaven, the new earth will have its fulfillment. It will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God when Jesus returns. You say, okay, that's great. That's a wonderful story. What difference does it make? It makes every difference. It means that we who follow Jesus are gardeners, not idolaters. We are stewards not dictatorial masters of the world. We tend the garden around us and look after it. The natural world is God's creation. It is His. And we are over it to take care of it, not to abuse it. It certainly means that. We're gardeners, not idolaters of nature. We do not worship nature. We do not have a too positive view of nature. We know, we know It is red in tooth and claw. One thing eating another thing. We don't have a too positive view of nature, but nor do we have a too negative view of the world around us. Why? God made it. God made it. Now, Paul is not getting here into the age-old debate about exactly how God made it. He's thinking much more practically than that. We have a responsibility to the world around us, and we are over it. It is not over us. We are stewards under God to take care of his creation. And what does that mean? It means we can love art. And we can love literature and music and nature all God's creation. We're stewards of these extraordinary resources all around us, but we're aware that's not the whole story. We understand that it's leading somewhere, childbirth. So we don't have a too positive view either. You see, not only are we gardeners, not idolaters of nature, we're also people who therefore prioritize evangelism, discipleship. Building the church. What is it that will set the world free from its bondage? What is it that will give it its freedom? What is it that will turn the world to its paradise state and actually liberate it to obtain the glory of the children of God? Well, Paul says it's the revealing of the sons of God when Jesus returns. And therefore, the thing that we can most do to free nature is to do evangelism and discipleship of people. Mentor someone. Tell someone about Jesus. Serve in the church. Read the Bible with someone. This is not, oh, we're forgetting the world. This is what the world's longing for. Standing on either tiptoes. This has most practical consequences for us as a church. Our mission efforts are to be focused on evangelism, discipleship. Now, sure, providing water for those who need water is a Christian thing to do. We are to love our neighbors. We are to be good Samaritans. Absolutely. This is who we are. Yes. But the world will not be saved by digging wells for water. The world will be saved when the revelation of the sons of God happens when Jesus returns. And so our task then is to advance the gospel. 
To provide water? Yes, and preach the gospel. For we know, we should know, that the one, the water, is a temporary relief, and the other, the evangelism, will one day provide the true relief that even the natural world around us is longing to have come about. The revelation of the sons of God, to which it will enter the glory of the freedom of the children of God when Jesus returns. So I want to counsel you as your pastor to avoid a too negative view of the world. You know, too negative, the world's all going to burn anyway, I'll just grab what I can, I'll be materialistic, I'll ruin the environment. I'll I'll ignore culture. I'll ignore the great works of literature. I'll ignore literature, uh, nature, and I'll just huddle down in my little tiny, small box. It's too negative. This is God's world. Too positive. I need a counsel you to avoid that too. You know, the world must be saved and therefore I'll hug every tree and dig every ditch and we can make the world enter its freedom that is only being kept back by people who view it too negatively to such an extent that I ignore the bugs sucking the life out of frogs and prioritize, prioritize the world around us over taking care of actual people who are made in the image of God. Too negative, too positive, just right. Yes, the world around is beautiful, but yes, it's also frustrated and has a sense of meaningless, which is pointing forward because its beauty is going to something and someone. That place is the revelation of the sons of God when Jesus returns, when it will enter the glory of the freedom of the children of God. And so, I tend the garden. It's God's creation. I am over it as he is over me. We are to look after the garden, after nature. But to free the garden, to free the nature from its bondage to futility, I then prioritize evangelism and discipleship and investing in the church, building the kingdom of God for the revelation of the children of God, which is the glory that the world itself is hoping and longing and panting as in childbirth for. That's where I put my effort, that's where I put my time, that's where I put my money. I I just think this is a beautiful story. It's a story that just fits, it's just right. But you know what is even more beautiful, more exciting, more, uh, more amazing than the story? The storyteller. Do you notice that all through this story, Paul is using the passive tense? Uh, the creation was subjected, not willingly. What's happening to the world? And the story that is being told is being told by him who subjected it, by someone. You say, what difference does that make? I think it makes all the difference. It's, it's like that moment in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings when Frodo and Sam are encouraging each other as they face pain and suffering. That you know, They say, look, one day this is going to make a good story. And someone's going to hear about it and they're going to say, I want to I hear that part of the story again. And they'll say, yes, but, that is, yes, but it's so much easier to read about those stories than actually be in them. You ever felt that? I, I love stories. I love the Star Wars myth, though nothing beats the first movie. 
by the way. I love the classics, Shakespeare, Jane Austen, Dickens, Twain. But, but you know what? The reason why we resonate with these stories is because you're in the story too. A story is being told right now, and someone is telling it. So the, here's what it means. The hardest moments, the moment that perhaps you're in right now, the deepest river and darkest dell, there's thunder and there's lightning, and you just don't think you're ever going to get out of it, that is the moment when the story really gets interesting. What's going to happen? What will take place? What will the protagonist do now? And all that storytelling is not only happening around us, it's happening to us. We are in that story. And someone is telling it. He's telling it now. You're in church. You have a life before you. Will you give your life to discipleship? and evangelism, and building the church. Will you invest in the revelation of the sons of God for which the whole of creation is longing? Will you give your life to be a part of that grand story, that cosmic epic, like a Ulysses or an Odyssey. Your life now, meaning something far more than you ever could have imagined, that this little battle that perhaps only you know about as you fight against your suffering is actually part of a great big story. And a far country and all the other big characters like Gandalf and Aragorn are riding off to big adventures. You feel all forgotten. But it could be that this moment is the pivotal moment in the whole adventure. Because you know who is telling that story. You know who is sighing along with creation, being frustrated along with creation, was crucified, died, buried, and rose to turn the story in a new direction to the new hope. Jesus the master storyteller of your life and of this world and of the entire universe. A story that if you decide to open the book or turn the next page in the adventure will lead you out of frustration to meaning and significance because no longer will your sense of meaning be defined by how well you did in your exams or in sports or how beautiful you are. All things that can never satisfy us. For who can ever be beautiful enough, clever enough, athletic enough? That's all the too positive view. You know, hours and hours in the gym to get a six-pack and arms like Schwarzenegger. Middle-age spread will come, I can tell you. A bug may even suck out the dream from your too positive view of the world. Where then your hope? No, 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 no. Open this story. Turn over the next page. Trust him with your suffering. 
and invest your life in telling other people about the storyteller too. Let's pray together. Just a moment of quiet for you to do that. Perhaps you sense frustration in your life. Here is an opportunity now to turn the next page. To invest your life in choosing to mentor someone. Telling a friend about Jesus. Going to small group Bible study. Reading the Bible yourself. Or maybe it's something bigger. A choice before you now whether to use your working experience as a banker as an opportunity to live for Christ or to use your working experience as a banker just to make more money? Which story are you living? Too negative, too positive, or just right? Right?